The last one was a little soft, but I think Scott will be able to pick up what I'm putting down. He's talented. He'll be able to do this just fine. <laughs> he's got he's got eyes like an eagle. And editing skills like an editor. Hey goblins, Brandon here. Uh, if you enjoy what we do and you'd like to help support us create more and maybe even take the podcast to weekly, then the best way right now that you can support us is to head over to patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers. You can find all the different stuff we do there, one-page dungeons, uh, bonus audio for things, all kinds of stuff. So head on over there, uh, and even if it's just a dollar or you know however much you're comfortable doing, or if you can't put anything toward the Patreon, just tell a friend about it. Tell somebody about the podcast. That's another great way to support us. So uh, patreon.com slash goblins growlers, uh, and we'll see y'all soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter, which may or may not be on fire right now. <laughs> I'm Brandon Dingus at Way of Brandalore on Twitter, and I feel this is an appropriate time for me to mention again that which I have not mentioned in several months that I'm also on Mastodon, apparently. <laughs> so we'll see how that pans out. I'm also on Instagram. I feel like any day now, uh, the engineers and ownership of old Twitter will just start up another social media platform and or buy back Twitter. <laughs> For like a tenth of what they got paid. Well, I mean, the funny part is like Elon Musk was forced to buy Twitter. I, I I don't think he ultimately really wanted it. He tried to back out of it before. And now he's like, well, I overpaid for this thing. So now I've got to what every leveraged investor does. I've got to try and get my money back out of this thing if I can. Yeah, I think I don't know how well that works in this particular situation, just because the equivalent would be signing a contract that you're going to buy a Ferrari and then being like, I actually probably shouldn't buy this Ferrari. And they're like, no, you signed a contract. You have to buy the Ferrari. And you're like, well, fine, I'm going to go off roading in it. No, I think I think what would be more equivalent is you buy the Ferrari and then you sell lots of the parts of the Ferrari to try to recoup <laughs> most of your investment. Yeah. You Rather than just <laughs> turning around and selling the Ferrari. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Um, I have I have I have something I want to discuss really quick up front that is not related to anything. But uh, you brought up the Twitter fire. And that reminded me of something that I feel like I really need to just share with the world. Um, so, uh, the other day I got a news alert on my phone and I, I don't know why, but Google news just sends me the, the most random stuff. Uh, and I get a news alert <laughs> that says Kelsey Grammer says he will boycott Disney if they won't let him reprise his role. Now, uh, the role he's referring to is, uh, Hank McCoy, uh, beast in the X-Men films, right? Which, uh, he famously portrayed in X3. Uh, back in the day. And he has said on numerous interviews since then that he really wants to portray the character again. He he had a cameo in Days of Future Past at the at the end of it. And he's just like, oh, I really wish they would just let me revisit the character. I know this isn't related to tabletop gaming or anything, but I just think it's really funny that Kelsey Grammer loves the role of Beast so much that he just keeps talking about it. 
like <laughs> it's like it is just this pet project of his like he absolutely and let me say let me say for the record i support kelsey Grammer in this i feel like he should boycott disney if they don't let him play beast again because if there is anything approaching the the platonic ideal of perfect casting in this world it was kelsey Grammer as beast and if you don't believe me Get on YouTube and find the deleted scene of Beast reciting Henry V's uh, soliloquy at the Battle of Agincourt uh, from X3. A, it is it is Blue Fraser and it is hilarious. A speech that you enjoyed so much that you altered it only slightly so that you could perform it for a quid pro roll bumper. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Henry V is my favorite Shakespeare play. I'm a big fan of the histories. I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that a mm. great deal. I love how nerdy we're starting this out for our freaking TTRPG podcast mm -hmm. and have yet to talk about TTRPGs almost at all. Yeah. If anyways, if you agree with me that Kelsey Grammer should be allowed to reprise the role of Beast and at the very least a short film, uh, please, uh, Tweet us at Way of Brandalore, at Goblin Scrawlers, <laughs> at Black Cloakiem, at Disney, question mark? Unless in the near future of the time between us recording this episode and the time this episode will be released, uh, Twitter has actually caught fire and is no longer a service. Yeah. In which case, find us on a different social media and uh, tag us there with that same demand. I just want to point out that the, just getting this news that he was trying to gin up some controversy about this again, it it awoke emotions in me so much that I took a screen grab of it and kept it on my phone. This is actually just in my phone's gallery, <laughs> just the headline of it from Giant Freaking Robot. Oh, my God. Uh, but anyways, anyway, that was uh, that was just me sharing. Uh, some nonsense there. <laughs> uh, I love I love a little bit of shared nonsense. Um, I believe before we th get mm -hmm. things actually rolling on the content of this episode, uh, you were reached out to by a certain man of mystery regarding yeah. the last episode. Yeah, uh, to like this afternoon I, or this, I guess it was this evening. Uh, I got home from work. And I came into my office and sat down and I checked my phone because I hadn't looked at it since before I left the office. And I had a Facebook message from uh, none other than friend of the show, Joe Donka, international man of mystery. And uh, it, for those of you maybe who haven't started, who started listening after this, such as uh, after the great Samsung explosion <laughs> uh, uh, earlier in the year, we had a trilogy where first we talked about the end Joe Donka's Christian Apocalypse uh, role-playing game from the mid-90s. Uh, talked about it, tried to find him, did some detective work, couldn't find him, reached out to somebody who I thought was him on Facebook. Uh, weeks later, he reached out to me. He's like, sorry, I don't check Facebook very often, but yeah, that's me. And then we had him on for a two-part interview where he, we just, he just talked about his, uh, his career uh, as a game developer and how he fell out of that and now he's teaching and everything. Uh, but hadn't talked to him in a few months and just got this random message from him. Uh, I haven't even responded to him yet as I read this while we record it. Uh, so, hey, Joe. Uh, but it says, Brandon, just listen to your satanic panic episode. Nice job. 
gave me PTSD flashbacks. It's weird listening to youngsters talk about my youth like it was ancient history. You guys have to mention the infamous 2020 episode on Satanism if you revisit this. Now, let's let's address this uh, point by point. First of all, Joe, thank you very much for reaching out. I was so glad to hear from you. Um, second thing, Joe, I'm, I'm I turn 41 next month. I am not a youngster. <laughs> um, and thing three, uh, well, you know, I was like, it's not ancient history because I was there too. Uh, th- thing three, I, I was in diapers, but I was there. Uh, thing three is uh, the infamous 2020 episode on Satanism. He's right. We should mention that because it was wild. Uh, it's it's legendary. So maybe next year when we circle back around uh, to spooky stuff and maybe talk about dark dungeons and chick tracks and something yeah, like that. I was going to say, we, can we talk were about already that. talking about how we completely glossed over chick tracks and the like. So I feel like we're going to have a little bit of a uh, satanic panic reprisal anyway. And it just makes sense to include the 2020 in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thanks, Joe, for pointing that out. If you have any other stuff you'd like us to talk about, uh, you know, maybe like a new project you're working yeah, on some, or something like something that. Something that you just, are perhaps working on in your free time that you're thinking about releasing in the next two or three years. Like any anything that, yeah. in that vein. Yeah, just let us know. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. Um, uh, was there anything else or can we get started? I think we can get started. Okay. All right. Um, Yeah, you sent me a link the other day, and I think my response was, well, that'll be good for for talking about on Wednesday night. (laughs) That was exactly your response. Yeah, because it's more it's more cultural insensitivity nonsense from Dungeons and Dragons. (laughs) Yeah, this so the uh, the article that Brandon's referencing came out on the D&D Beyond website on November the 10th, 2022. I, of course, try to pay some attention to what uh, Wizards is talking about on their own press releases and things like that. And so when I saw this, I was like, oh, hey, that thing that we've been literally talking about and thinking that surely they were doing at this point for mm-hmm. what now, a year and a half, two years, three years, yeah. somewhere, somewhere in the like last three years. They're finally doing yeah, it. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Just for for context and background for anybody who may not remember, uh, you know, you know, let's let's go through the timeline <laughs> of of uh, just a, a sample of uh, Dungeons and Dragons insensitivity toward other cultures. Let's start back in 1983 uh, when they launched uh, Ravenloft and had uh, you know really bad stereotypical presentations of the Roma people, uh, and how they just sort of let that ride for the next uh almost 40 years uh because nobody like nobody called them out on it like it was widely known that this was pretty racist and they were just like eh whatever and it wasn't until 20 the summer of 2020 when uh all kinds of new attention was given to cultural depictions and and racial sensitivity that they were like oh gosh we should really do something about that like, yeah, no shit, man. You should you knew a long time ago you should have done something about that. But you just nobody lit a fire under you until this. Let's be completely frank um, and honest with ourselves here. The reason they rewrote it when they rewrote it is because they were planning mm-hmm. on re-releasing Curse of Strahd. Right. Like and also and also later. 
And also they gave themselves it gave them a lot of uh, really positive publicity yeah. where they were able to literally turn a negative into a positive. Uh-huh. Like they yeah. still haven't so. changed the uh, quote unquote oriental adventures that they sell. They're like, oh, gosh, these are from another time, folks. But they haven't edited them. They're still there in all of their yeah. raw and racist glory. Yeah. What was the next thing? It wasn't the Spelljammer thing. Wasn't there something in between there? Oh, God. Um, oh, there was the Candlekeep Mysteries yep, thing. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, where they edited in colonialism themes to to something. To, uh, and it, it was completely uh, not the author's right. intent. He was a creator of color who had written a group of people who did so happen to live in a tribal fashion, but were not savages and were not like any of these terrible, terrible things. And immediately the edit is like, oh yeah, they're like super simple and they use really basic tools. And he was like, no, none of that was the case in the thing that I wrote. What is this? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, you know, I get when you're work for hire, they can do whatever they want to your content, but I just kind of want to make it clear that I didn't write that. I too would want to distance myself from those sorts of changes to my creative work. Mm hmm. And then we get to this point where we're like, okay, well, I bet they've learned their lesson. Surely. At this surely point. Because after that, they were talking about sensitivity readers and taking steps for all these to make sure this kind of thing didn't happen again. Well, and then their much ballyhooed Spelljammer re-release comes out. Uh, and, uh, oh, what's that? <laughs> what's that? There's racist stuff in there that nobody caught. <laughs> well, golly, Sergeant Carter. Um uh, the the Hadazi, which were introduced in the 80s uh, in the original Spelljammer. Um, yeah, they they are essentially a stereotype of uh, African slaves uh, who like rise up. And uh, if I remember correctly, and I didn't go back and listen to us talk about it before, but if I remember correctly, one of the issues there was wasn't that background like not part of their original origin that is correct you dropped that particular bomb on me while i was busy talking about how i understand that some of this stuff was written before any of us was thinking about how racist something sounded and you were like well as so happens and i was like well great now i'm three times as mad yeah yeah so we're like and you know they they said all the right things after that we're like okay all right, so we really dropped the ball on this. We're immediately going to change that. So any future reprints, and which, by the way, the second printing of Spelljammer is uh, happening like right around now, I think. So new copies of that that are on the shelves in the next few months should be updated where they remove all that stuff. But, uh, you know, again, they said all the right stuff. Um, like, oh, yeah, we'll, I promise we'll do better next time. I promise we'll do better next time. And, you know, nothing's happened yet. But also, it's only been a few months. So, you know, give 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 wizards a year. They'll uh, they'll do something offensive. Maybe uh, I feel I feel like I'm just getting mad now. <laughs> but um, so Chris Perkins, uh, like the lead creative uh, D&D designer, uh, had that has this blog up on D&D Beyond that Josh sent to me. And um you know, let, let's just hit on some of it. It says this blog is one of the ways in which the D&D studio discusses topics of interest to those who play and enjoy D&D. In this blog post, I'll, I'll talk about how we in the D&D studio are changing our review process following the problematic content that appeared in Spelljammer's Adventures in Space. 
Uh, and then there's a uh, and we'll put this in a link to this in the show notes. And then there's a, a header and then it says harmful content and it says if we discover something that we created is harmful or hurtful to fans, we correct it. Then we identify how it happened and how to do better in the future. The first printing of Spelljammer Adventures in Space included two pieces of content that fl- fans correctly flagged as offensive. The first is an illustration of a Hadazi bard that resembles offensive minstrelsy materials and other racist depictions of black people. <sighs> the second is a paragraph about Hadazis that reinforces harmful real-world stereotypes. Future reprints will omit both the illustration and the offensive text, neither of which had been reviewed by cultural experts. Now, I will fully admit that I bought the Spelljammer book and did not read it. Uh, so it's sitting in my spare room, uh, unread at the moment. So I didn't get to see that illustration, but I could go in the other room and look at it, I guess. So that was something that even escaped my notice when we were originally talking about this, because I didn't realize there was an illustration. I mean, we we heard Um, about the Hadazi problem fairly early into the release of Spelljammer. So I know we were at least conscious mm -hmm. of it because we were talking about it on the show. And Mm -hmm. it just like, oh, you guys. Oh, yeah. So then the next header inclusion reviews. In the weeks since fans flagged the offensive content in Spelljammer, we in the D&D studio have been building and testing new inclusion review process. Inclusion reviews ensure our games are inclusive and welcoming for all players. Previously, inclusion reviews were inclusion reviews were done at the discretion of the product lead who identified which pieces of a product needed an outside inclusion review. And this this part's in bold. The studio's new process mandates that every word, illustration and map must be reviewed by multiple outside cultural consultants prior to publication. And then new paragraph, not in bold. While the D&D team is racially, ethnically, gender, and cognitively diverse, we don't want our marginalized employees to be burdened with the task of reviewing content for cultural competency. That's why we leverage the expertise of outside cultural I'm consultants. I'm just picturing Inclusion- some product lead walking out to the studio and being like, hey, Greg, you're black. Can you look at this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this also yeah. is not a good solution. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, and, you know, speaking as speaking, let me finish reading this and I'll give you my opinion on something. Um, It says inclusion reviews now happen several times during a product's development, at least once during each of the following phases, text creation phase, art creation phase, final product review phase. Text and art are reviewed separately until the final product review phase when cultural consultants review the edited text and final art side by side. So, you know... As someone who's worked in editorial and publishing, um, I can tell you immediately that it is ridiculous that the idea of, especially in 2022, that inclusion reviews are done at the discretion of a product lead. That's insane. That's insane uh, because it's so subjective. Like what, like it, what one person thinks is fine or doesn't even think about because it's not they don't know enough about it for it to trigger anything uh in their thought process like could be like wildly offensive and you can't just lean on one person's opinion so that like it baffles me that we got to this point and wizards of the coast had not instituted a more rigorous sensitivity and inclusion review process other than that and all of that is assuming that the product lead is able to take a close enough look at each individual product that's being created underneath them that they notice things like this. Mm-hmm. Because I know for me personally, 
when I've been writing something or working on something for long enough, even small changes start to look like wallpaper. Like I, I'm just glazing over completely as I'm trying to edit it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> and so the next, the next uh, header says implementation. And it says, now let's peek at how the new inclusion review process works. Consultant reports. After completing their reviews, the cultural consultants submit written reports that are shared with the studio's leadership team. The product lead then works with the art director and the managing editor to develop a plan that addresses the consultant's feedback. Next steps. The feedback and the proposed changes are compiled into a single document for review by the consultants and the studio's executive producer. Once the changes are approved, the plan is implemented. If the plan requires the creation of new content, that, excuse me, that content receives its own inclusion review. Uh, header, reprints. The new inclusion process applies not only to products in development, but also reprints. In other words, every reprint is an opportunity to conduct a new inclusion review on previously published content. As I write this blog post, Spelljammer's Adventures in Space is about to be reprinted. Applying our new inclusion review process to the Spelljammer reprint led us to make additional changes, which are captured in our official errata document and reflected on D&D Beyond. Moving forward. Just as D&D is a living game that grows and changes as we learn, so too will our inclusion review process uh, evolve and improve. We are expanding our pool of cultural consultants so that we have the expertise needed to review the variety of material we publish. We will also continue to listen to D&D fans who call attention to offensive content. We will do our best to make this project or process diligent, methodical, and universal as possible, better ensuring that our products bring joy rather than cause pain to our fans. Uh, and that was from Chris Perkins. Yeah, so like I am generally in support of this concept. I obviously I think this is a necessary thing for wizards to be doing. I quite frankly thought it was something that Wizards was doing, oh, two years ago, as opposed to right now. Mm -hmm. And so every time they had a misstep, I was like, why didn't you consult your culture competency folks? Like, why, why is this coming up now in the public eye instead? What's happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I look at this and I still see some issues here. Um, first of all, I want to just say this appears to be a very thorough process they've developed on paper. It has multiple levels to it. Um, there, there are checks uh, to stop things from getting through. But it also smacks of, and I'm sure everybody can relate to this, it smacks of a mistake was made and the company reacts in just a, like with a wild overreaction of process and bureaucracy to it like uh it's it's like they're like oh well we didn't have anything in place for this before now we're going to have everything in place for this before i've run into it a lot um i'm sure other people have where a company just goes like entirely in the other direction after after a mistake and now i'm not saying that's bad i'm just saying like in this case especially i'm not saying that's bad it just really feels like a reactionary move to me rather than something that's coming from like a really thoughtful place, like sort of like, a oh, we, this happened again and we got caught. So we really need to make a solid show of this. And maybe I'm being cynical. Um, I only think maybe I'm halfway being cynical because I also know this is how businesses work. Um, I just I, I just think they're they're erring on the side of doing too much at this I point. Mean uh, since they erred on the side of not doing a enough. company the size of Wizards of the Coast, it's worth erring a little <laughs> bit on the side of uh, they are a large business that's going to perform in large business ways. 
Mm. I will say, right. If this, if we were talking about a situation like, oh, uh, one of the forklift drivers was on his phone texting and uh, ran a person over. So now no one in the warehouse mm. is allowed to have a cell phone. You turn it off and you turn it in when you walk in the door. That I would be like, that's isn't that a little extreme? Shouldn't we just be punishing the one person who is crazy enough and stupid enough to be on their phone mm. while driving a forklift? But in a situation like this, mm -hmm. where they're producing content that is theoretically going to be seen globally, and they're mm -hmm. producing it for a wide variety of cultures, they're producing it representing a wide variety of cultures and of cultural inspirations, I feel like everything probably should go through cultural competency officers. And I don't disagree with that. But here's... Here's sort of the flip side of, of what I was going to say, too, is they specifically refer to these people as cultural consultants. Now, consultants usually means a very specific thing, uh, which is they are not W-2 employees of the company. Um, they are 1099 uh, freelance contractors. Right. And they're only becoming involved at this at the end, like at the end of certain phases. Right. Or involved like during certain phases. My question is, why are these people not just on Wizards full-time editorial staff and involved in the process from beginning to end so we don't reach a point where, oh, well, we've created like the text creation phase is done and they send it to the cultural consultant. They're like, oh, like 20% of this needs to be changed. Why, why is that person just not involved as a full-time employee from the beginning of the process? That is a fair point and a fair question. Uh, in particular, why aren't these employees of your company that are involved the whole time? Like I, smaller publishers have staff sensitivity readers. Well, and on top of that, it's not like they can't afford to pay for that particular staff member. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, we don't know the internal business dealings of this, so. Maybe it is that they're just calling them consultants and they're full-time employees, but that's not typically what consultant means in a now, business context. I will say, like um, you know, the company I work for has a set of consultants that have their own business, that their business is consulting. Mm -hmm. And so we get their people mm -hmm. part-time because we can't, we don't have enough mm -hmm. need for their service to be using them full-time. I don't know that mm -hmm. that's the case for Wizards because Wizards is very frequently working on a lot of stuff all at once. But maybe the thing is that mm -hmm. a cultural consultant makes more sense for them because they only need them for 24 hours a week. This with as much as Wizards has. I was about to say dealt with, but has <laughs> not dealt with um, <laughs> over the last little bit. They should have. A cultural, they should have a sensitivity reading or cultural, like cultural sensitivity, racial sensitivity editing department. It should be, it should be a part of the editorial department reporting up to whatever their equivalent for the product editorial director is. Um, and they should have broad dotted line responsibility over all the other publishing. There is another books. way to look at this. If it's an outside party who is a contractor who's being brought in to do this work, then there is less likelihood of someone calling foul play. 
and saying, oh, yeah, you're withholding mm-hmm. uh, raises for these people because you're saying, oh, you're you're marking too many things as problematic and we're having to do too many rewrites because of it. And if they're mm-hmm. a consultant, then they're I, setting yeah. their own rates and then Wizards is agreeing to those rates mm-hmm. and paying those rates. So it's it's possible I would be interested to get more information on this because it's possible that there's a good reason for them to be consultants and not employees. But I would like to hear what that reason is so that we could confirm. Yeah. Dan Rawson, if you're listening to this, can you please uh, can you please reach out at Way of Brandalore on Twitter at Black Cloak DM on Twitter and <laughs> let us know if you're cultural consultants or W2 employees uh, or if they're 1099 contractors and the reasoning for whichever answer you give us. Thanks, Dan Ross. We really appreciate it. I follow you on LinkedIn now, so uh, you should respond to me. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Uh, yeah, like I. Yeah. Overall, I'm glad that they're doing this thing. I'm glad that it has finally come to the point where they are doing this thing. I I agree. I think the cultural consultants could be involved in every stage and not just when we're deciding to reprint or print something new and we're at a specific part of the creative process. It would be nice for people to basically, I mean, like it'd be like having somebody in the building who you could bounce an idea off of and go, Hey, what do you think about this? Because I think it's a really cool idea, but I'm a straight cishet white guy. Like I, uh, I don't know all of the things that maybe I should be looking out for as potential cultural landmines. So help me out with that. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be something incredibly useful for an office like Wizards. (laughs) You know, it's it's interesting. Um, You know, this came out on November 10th and, uh, you know, the uh, at like right around market open um, Hasbro stock was like fifty nine dollars and fifty nine cents. And it just kept climbing up until the end of the day on Friday. And then it just uh, it dropped a whole dollar. Uh, so the the gaming community had a whole day, a day and a half to absorb this statement by Chris Perkins. And then it ended up costing a dollar in in Wizards of the Coast parent company's stock price. I don't know <laughs> that these two things are related. <laughs> It's funny because I was I was just having to call up the the stock chart and I did a five day uh, backward look on it and there's just a precipitous <laughs> drop at market close on Friday. I'm like ah Chris Perkins, but there's there's so little fluctuation that even just that dollar movement looked like it absolutely oh cratered. <laughs> so there there is an errata um, document which has some variety of changes. I flipped into it fairly quickly just to take a, a brief look at it. I didn't see what the changes that were based on cultural competency were. I'm sure they're in here. Actually, you know what? Now that I say mm. that, I see two like big paragraphs. <laughs> I bet those are uh, I bet those are text changes. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, and the thing is, unless you compare them side by side, you're not going to be able to see what the differences are, because in the grand tradition of newspaper corrections, you don't repeat the error in the correction. 
So they're not going to be like, well, we, this was the racist thing that was there before. So this is the new not racist thing. They're just going to say, here's how it is now and just leave you to figure out the differences I mean, on your own. Even just saying, here's the new thing for this race, I think uh, informs a lot of like, oh, there was something problematic in this race before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I probably will take a look at this uh, and compare it with my um, first edition Spelljammer uh, printing and just see what the differences might be. Hopefully nothing like wild. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, we'll have it. We'll have it in the yeah. show notes so that folks who want to follow along at home can send in things they found. Mm hmm. Okay. Um, what do we got next, Josh? Next, we have a little something that, uh, let's see here. As of release day will be early access on D&D Beyond. Which I think if I'm doing my math right, uh, which is the Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen module that's coming out from Wizards of the Coast for D&D uh, &D 5th edition. Yeah, now, just want to put this out there right at the beginning of talking about this. I was never a huge Dragonlance fan back in the 90s. Um, I know there's like eight blue billion Dragonlance novels, and most of the stuff I know about Dragonlance, I know from a friend of mine who read the Dragonlance novels. And so I would hear him talk about things like Kender or like Tannis Half-Elven or something like that. Um, Takasis, the God, um, the War of the Lance and things like that. I've actually read a Dragonlance novel, a singular Dragonlance novel about 25 years ago. Um, and I don't really remember much about it at all except the main character was some kind of like kender rogue or thief or something like that and he was a very popular character that people are listening to this probably screaming at me for not being able to remember his name but i'm sorry in I a don't. similar fashion i will confess that i think you and i have the same experience here where i too read a single novel Maybe about 25. No, it's it would be a little bit later than that for me. Maybe more like. <laughs> Wouldn't you have been like five? Yes. So it's more like 15 years ago for me. But uh, it sounds like you were about 16. I was about 17. Somewhere in that area, I read one novel that I recall not fully grasping. I clearly had picked up a novel that was in the middle of a storyline as opposed to the beginning that I thought it mm -hmm. was. And I can't remember now if that was mm -hmm. at a friend's recommendation or if it was me wandering through the library and being like, this book cover looks cool, which is a thing I would occasionally do. Uh, I recall there being a weird sort of uh, like a pseudo romantic relationship between writer and dragon. And I recall being like, well, this is a furry book. This is a book for furries. <laughs> Are you sure you just aren't remembering the never ending story? <laughs> yes, I am. I am certain of that. 
Um, Tasselhoff Burfoot. That was the name of the Kender. And apparently he steals things, but he doesn't consider himself a thief. Uh, I discovered this, full transparency, by looking up uh, the Wikipedia page while you don't Josh was tassel talking. You do the Hoff. I googled... <laughs> I googled Dragonlance Kender, and then I clicked on the Wikipedia entry for Kender, and then I found the name because I knew it was weird, and if I saw it, I would remember what it was. And that took me to his Wikipedia page, where he apparently debuted in 1984. And then it says, in the novel Kendermore, Tasselhoff is collared by a lady bounty hunter and charged with violating the Kender laws of prearranged marriage. So I'm wondering, did Chuck Tingle write Kendermore? <laughs> I, I, there's so many things I want to say, uh-huh. but all of them start with Chuck Tingle book titles, mm-hmm. and I think that might be a little bit too far for our show. Blanked in the blank by the blank blank. <laughs> I was I was gonna say blanked in the blank by a lady bounty hunter, but you know. <laughs> oh, here we go. Slammed in um, the jail by the lady bounty hunter. There we go. I got it. <laughs> uh, Chuck Tingle, uh, I, you're welcome to that. I'm sure you can probably write it in a day and get it up on Amazon. So there you go. Um, oh, also, uh, other facts about Dragonlance that I know. It takes place in the world of Kryn. Uh, <laughs> so, the funny thing is, both of us knowing our relative level of Dragonlance ignorance, set out to educate ourselves before this recording, mainly by trying to find some really solid information about the 5e book that was being released. Uh, but come to find out, Wizards doesn't even have like a, a proper product page for it on their website. Well, they have they have like a product page, but it's nowhere near like the Spelljammer book had like video interviews. It had blurbs from the game. It had like it had all of this content and all of this media that was built up around it. When you go to the product page for Shadow of the Dragon Queen. There is a button to choose whether you want to look at the deluxe edition or the book. There is a button to pre-order. There's a banner with a countdown for the early access on D&D Beyond. And then there's a product contents list that basically just reads like the ingredients section on a cereal box. Yeah. Yeah, like... It feels like they phoned this one in, I guess, for, for lack of a better, uh, better description, because like I was expecting at least two videos with the designers and writers just sort of talking about Kryn, setting the stage for Kryn for folks who didn't have a lot of experience with it, never played it back in the 90s or anything or read any of the books. But instead, all we have is a is a teaser trailer that's like done in sort of an animatic format uh, that doesn't tell you anything. And then it's got an ad for the alt cover, which honestly looks really cool, even though I don't collect the alt covers because I want all my books to look the same on my bookshelf. But uh, it, it has like a find your local gaming store thing there to try to get that. Um, it's, it's very weird. It's very weird that they that they didn't have more. For yeah, this. I mean, I don't maybe Dragonlance is a big deal. People love Maybe Dragonlance. Maybe their entire marketing team was in talking to the cultural consultants about something that they were writing. Oh, yeah. It was just a meeting <laughs> conflict. They just didn't have time to write it. Yeah. Um, 
But the, you know, the, the, the product info for it says, uh, Takasis, the Dragon Queen, has returned to the world of Kryn. Across the land, her armies of fanatical draconians wage a brutal war of conquest. As the dragon armies march on the unprepared nation of Salamnia, only the defenders of the city of Calaman stand in their way. But the dragon armies want more than just to crush their foes. An ancient evil of the, in the Dragon Queen service seeks a magical weapon that could dominate Kryn for all time. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Tale of defiance uh, and conflict set during the legendary War of the Lance. Um, blah, 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 march them to the front lines against terrifying dragon armies. Um, and then there's another part to this, which we'll get to in a minute, but, um, I ended up having to dig around. I think Josh and I found sort of the same stuff, but it was very difficult to find any kind of, um, story about this that talked about a lot of information. Like we're not important enough to be on the media previews for these things. So we had to find people who were important enough to be on the media previews and who wrote stories about the media preview that they got. Uh, so we went to Bell of Lost Souls and they had a, a nice little breakdown of uh, the first chapter of the adventure uh, that was released for free during the media preview. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, some of the a lot of the feedback I've been seeing for folks who saw that is they were kind of wished that this was higher level. Like, I think it uh, tops out at like, yeah, it level it's 11 first or something to like 11th that. level. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw some feedback from folks saying they really wished it went up to 15, had options for that kind of thing, um, which, you know, I think what they only have, they only have the one hot, like high level adventures book that's out right that now, don't they? That sounds right. I mean, they've got older published books that are 5e compatible, but right. for current, for current. Right. I'm talking about just the, yeah, yeah. So there was, there was that. Um, it's interesting too. Uh, how they're getting into the story because like one of the whole things about Dragonlance is that it takes place during the War of the Lance and there's it's just very, you know, conflict focused and things like that. But they structure the first chapter of the book as a way to get the players acclimated to Salamnia and Kalamath and at, at, like pre-conflict. Like it's set up in a nice arc structure where they they start out. It's just sort of regular days. Um, they start hearing rumors eventually as you get to like the midpoint of of that chapter uh, and come to find out ultimately that um, like this area is the the incursion incursion spot, I guess, for an invasion from uh, far in the east. Uh, and then that launches into the whole story about the war and everything like that. So I like that they don't immediately start it out kind of in media res, uh, like in conflict, because it gives you a chance to understand what quote unquote normal is in the context of the story. And then that gives you something to compare to and gives your characters stakes and investment in something to fight. My for. understanding is also that all of the characters starting out are in this town to celebrate the life of a friend that all of them shared who I'm guessing is kind of an adventurer mm -hmm. character to begin with. And so you immediately have something that ties your party together. And I'm guessing that, and cause obviously I haven't seen the work itself, but I'm guessing there's a little bit of a mechanic for like, who wants to talk about what parts of this person's life and what this person meant to them to kind of establish like, mm -hmm. why was this person important to me? based on knowing these things about them. So in what what you're saying is in Kryn, they celebrate yes. life day. Certainly. Yeah. 
the friend we're the friend we're all talking about is Chewbacca's son. <laughs> That's going to be my new text alert for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, given uh, given what sort of the tenor of the overall adventure is going to be, where it's just largely set in conflict and having to deal with that, I think it's nice to start it out uh, in a way that sort of ratchets up to the tension and builds it in a way that the characters have a stake in it and they're, they lose something by the world sort of descending into sort of a battle hard. Yeah. Chaos. When, you, when you see a city burn, it means something to you because you're thinking about the people who live there. Hashtag Palabar. <laughs> um, uh, also obligatory. Uh, please listen to our sister podcast, Quid Pro Roll, a 5e. Uh, where you play. can listen to us set fire to at least one city and multiple buildings. Mm hmm. Um, but what's the, what's the other part of, uh, of this Dragonlance? So the, the other part of this is a board game that's being released kind of alongside it. Not like, actually, I think it is. Is it at the same time? Yeah, because I think, uh, the deluxe bundle, if you order the deluxe bundle, you actually get the board game as part of it. Yeah, so at the same time as the modules coming out, there is a board game that's coming out that is a... Uh, Warriors of Kryn Battle Simulator, uh, which basically, to me, based on what I'm seeing here, <laughs> is a battle map, some like army figurines, and then some rules for playing out army combat. <laughs> Warriors of Kryn Battle Simulator sounds like an Atari game that came out in like, <laughs> 1979. Fair. So... The cool thing about the board game, which I will give them credit, this is something that I've been hearing a lot of people talk about, and we've, uh, I think a lot of GMs have run into at one point or another, is running a really, really large combat for your D&D or otherwise group is pretty difficult. It's, it's a hard thing to do without jumping into another system altogether. This doesn't really solve that as much as it does give it a sort of tie-in feel because what they've done is set it up so that this board game that you can play has tie-in for six different encounters within Shadow of the Dragon Queen. Worth. And how do they tie uh, well, in? Well, apparently they provide the scenarios with win-loss outcomes that impact the role-playing game experience, resulting in different encounter and quest choices for players. So the board game that I buy introduces an element of randomization to the way my experience right. is going you to You play go. the board game to determine okay. how the war goes for that particular battle, and that then changes a little bit how your adventure develops, which I think is kind of a cool way to handle that, quite frankly, because it is tough to run inside a system like D&D 5e, a large group combat above a certain size. Like anybody who's run a table with like five or six player characters and then has thrown like an entire bandit camp at them knows exactly what I'm talking about. There's something about like you get to a certain point where large numbers become too large and it becomes arduous to run. 
Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, you could just use swarm mechanics for everything. <laughs> Soldiers flow like a river through the cracks and crevices oh, of God. the party. No. That sounded a lot worse after I said it than I thought it was Brandon's going to. Brandon's solution is run everything as a swarm of bears. Mm hmm. Yeah, it, nobody will be disappointed. <laughs> nobody. Um, I, you know, I, I, I like I like this because you can also play it as a standalone yeah. board game. It doesn't have to tie in. I would be very <coughs> excuse me. I would be very mad if it if like you could only play it in concert with the actual campaign, because then I think we're getting into some kind of probably like weird Warhammer. Hybrid yeah, a little bit. It's also worth highlighting that the board game is being designed by Rob Daviau and Stephen Baker. And Rob Daviau is one of the first people to start doing legacy games like Legacy Risk and a little later on uh, Pandemic Legacy. Stephen Baker is the brain behind Hero Quest. So you got you got a couple of pretty big names in board games behind this, which is cool. Mm -hmm. I almost want to pick up Warriors of Kryn just by itself. Like, I'll be honest, I have very little interest in buying this Dragonlance like supplement um, just because I don't really have a huge connection to the property. But I would very much like to try this, which feels to me like like D&D's like baby step take on Warhammer or just war games in general. It is kind of funny that you say that given the history of D&D. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I am aware, I, but you I know, know what I mean. I know precisely what you mean. It's just funny to think about. I I'm intrigued mm -hmm. by the concept of tying in a board game to your D&D play. Not because I think that's going to be a mm -hmm. super simple thing that's easily executed. My expectation is that some people will not consider how long it's going to take to play this board game. And they'll be like, no, it's fine, guys. We can probably wrap this up in like 30 minutes to an hour. And then two and a half hours later, they're like, when can we go home? And it's like, I'll just take a picture of the board and we'll come back to it in a week or two for our regular session. And then they come back and they're like, Oh, God, we have to put everything back the way it was. No. That's why that's why you have a dedicated gaming room where you can just leave it set up. Yeah. I mean, if you've got children or cats, that's kind of a limited capacity sort of deal. I will. I mean, not if you have doors. I mean, children can open doors and I've I've found cats in rooms. Cats definitely were not supposed to be in. Uh. So the the thing I will say is that if you're going to do this with the board game mechanic, make sure that what you do is you do a fade to black right before the army battle so you can start your next yeah. session with the board game. <laughs> and maybe try to get it set up. Before yeah, exactly. Your friends get Have there. some general inkling of how the rules work before everyone arrives to play. Yeah. Now, I'll be interested. I wonder... I just thought of this, um, you know, talking about one D and D and the shift, uh, the ultimate, I believe, shift over to virtual tabletop for most of this kind of stuff. Is there going to be a Warriors of Kryn, uh digital product? 
That's an excellent question and not one that I currently have an answer for. Yeah, they don't say anything about it. Um, on the product page, uh, it you know it says you can get the physical book and er like early access to the book on D and D Beyond, but it doesn't say anything about a digital version of the board game. I would bet that they're not incorporating that part into online play. Um, at least not right. At least not right now. I'm betting like with some of the um, like uh, three quarter perspective, like isometric perspective dungeon stuff that they were showing in the one D and D demo they'll probably incorporate something like this into that when it's ready to do like large scale military battles and things. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Like, I, I guess they probably want to keep this as keep these as physical sales. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it's tough to do a digital board game. Well, they've started really making headway yeah. with that in the past few years, especially with COVID, but it's still difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't be shocked if we see something in a year and a half, two years time where they're like, hey, we decided to take the board game digital. Now you can play it wherever you are with whoever you want, wherever they, they are. Should, they should hire that guy that recreated Dark Tower in Tabletop Simulator. Oh, my God. That was so well done. Yes, they should hire that guy. Yeah, his his notes on that were hilarious, <laughs> like how he would talk about like teaching himself different parts of the Unreal Engine just so he could get one feature working. Well, and also having this issue that where he kept running into, is my game broken or is this part of the play experience? Yeah. <laughs> yeah he should have programmed in the batteries and the tower dying. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then it launches a mini game where you have to go search the house for more double A's. <laughs> Where's the TV remote? Yeah. But anyway, Dragonlance, Shadow of the Dragon Queen. Um, if you listening to this have a deep emotional, spiritual connection to Dragonlance and uh, you really want to tell us what's up with it, please reach out to us. Contact at goblinsandgrowlers.com, at Way of Brandalore, at Black Cloak DM, at Goblins Growlers on Twitter. And tell us why we should care about Dragonlance. I'm not saying I don't care about it. I'm just saying I was never indoctrinated into it. I'm going to I was very, very much a Forgotten Realms guy. I'm going to put something really bold out there, uh, given everyone knows who has watched any of the book club episodes knows how hard a time I have reading books at any speed, which is if the community recommends as a unit one Dragonlance book, theoretically to get me hooked on the universe, I will read that book. <laughs> And I'll comment on it in Goblins and Growlers uh, podcast once I finish it. I'll keep that in mind. Um, and, you know, another way you can yell at us about why we should, why, how we're just disregarding the rich history of Dragonlance <laughs> uh, is by hitting us up on the Discord at bit.ly slash Goblin Discord. Uh, and, you know, you can yell at us for all manner of things there. Absolutely. Something I almost forgot to mention as part of this, we've kind of glazed over it a little bit is that uh, -huh. uh this is one of the first times that Wizards of the Coast is releasing a digital copy alongside the physical copy so if you're Ooh. if you're pre-ordering the physical copy you get digital copy access which i think is kind of the plan going forward especially with yeah. D&D 1 ramping up so i'm excited that to is, see how that goes that is the singular thing that i have been ranting about for several years 
uh, with this company. And, you know, it really was sort of once once they bought D&D Beyond, uh, it was really sort of only a matter of time. I feel like that was the only thing holding them up from doing that. So I'm I'm glad we started this podcast so that we could convince them to make changes like that. You know, when you have a platform, it's your responsibility to bring positive change into the world (laughs) with that platform. So I'm really happy I could be uh, the leader of this movement. And, you know, really make the world better for so many virtual tabletoppers. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, Josh, what should we recommend people do to further uh, the listenership of this of this uh, podcast? I mean, if you're looking to further the listenership of this podcast, uh, then you should probably telephone, telegraph, tell a friend about the Goblins and Growlers podcast. There we go. That's what I wanted. I'm glad I got it. I For um, a moment, I was like, Brandon wants me to talk about the Patreon. And then I was like, no, no. Brandon wants me to talk about telephone, telegraph, tell a friend about the Goblins of Growth. Say podcast. the line, Bart. <laughs> Say the line. Uh, I um, mean, you should join our Patreon because that's how we afford to do a lot of the cool stuff we do, such as buy unusual and interesting RPG books. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, also... Uh, if you're on the discord or you want to hit us up by email or Twitter and suggest some weird, obscure, uh, TTRPG for us to take a look at, uh, just throw that our way. Uh, and if we can find a physical copy of it somewhere, we'll buy it somehow. Yeah. Folks might've noticed that we haven't done scratch my indie itch for a little bit. Part of the problem there is that Brandon and I keep opening itch.io and being like, let's trawl through here and see what really picks our fancy. And every time we find something, we start digging into it and we're like, oh, this is like one tenth of a Kickstarter that's never going to get fully fulfilled. (laughs) Oh, no. And the other part of that, too, is um, we're both really, really busy. That is (laughs) also a factor. Yes. And that's one extra bit of research that we haven't been able to put into our schedules. Yeah, we try to we try to at least come to these episodes informed about the primary topic we're talking about. It feels like we'd be doing indie RPGs a disservice by being like, we spent two hours looking for you and then 15 minutes looking at your product page so that we could talk about you on our episode. Mm hmm. Yeah, but. We'll get back to it. Uh, really, we just got to get through the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> and then things will probably get a little easier. Yeah. I'm I'm definitely looking forward to having a little bit more free time in the near-ish future, hopefully. Well, Josh, I said when we started recording that, hey, maybe we don't need, maybe we won't take the whole hour. Um, so if we stop now, that'll still be true. Hey, yeah. Because we're, we're coming up on about 58 minutes at this point. Well, if you want to reach out to me until it completely collapses, you can find me at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Um, yeah, and let's just for safety's sake say you can find me uh, at Wave Brandler on Instagram. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Bye. like what you hear consider subscribing and giving us a review over on apple podcasts especially early in the feed subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way thank you